Well, good afternoon and welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian and I'm in studio with our senior pastor, Scott Richards, and Pastor Sean Richards. Say hi to the people, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Happy Monday. We hope you had a good weekend. And uh, this is A Reason for Hope. For those of you who may be tuning in for the very first time, this is a weekday Bible answer program where we take questions from you, the audience, watching uh, us as we live stream. And what our goal here is, is to just take questions from you um, about the Bible, the Christian worldview, how to apply specific passages to your life. And so if that's uh, something that would be of interest to you, then we would encourage you to uh, follow along. And the best way you can do that is uh, you can just join us on the live stream. So if you're tuning in, you can catch us on Facebook. Just go to Facebook.com and you can search for Calvary Christian Fellowship. That's the church that we are uh, here in Tucson, Arizona, live streaming from in our studio, our little humble podcast studio that we have come to know and love. And uh, so we would encourage you to join us there. Just use the comment section to ask your questions. You can also follow along on YouTube. On YouTube, our channel is called A Reason for Hope. Um, our handle is at a reason for hope 546 if you want to know the exact address you just go to youtube.com forward slash type in that address and you'll go right to our channel and uh, you just chime in uh, right around 5 p.m. Central Standard Time I'm sorry Mountain Standard Time it depends on what time of year sometimes we are on Central Standard Time but right now uh, or close to it anyway but uh, anyhow just um, chime in on YouTube and we'll take the questions as we see them come and if we miss your question we do apologize we don't always get to everyone's question but uh, uh, just wait till the next episode we usually kind of write them down keep a catalog and we'll get to it as soon as we can if you um, would prefer to not engage with social media and you kind of want to just watch the live stream without having your profile up or anything like that you can also just go to our website that's coverchristianfellowship.com and just click that watch live tab and you can see us there and uh, there's a little chat box you can ask your questions there it's a live stream so it's it's the same as any other social media platform there's also a little prayer button you can use if you want to uh, leave a prayer request you can do so and uh, we'd be happy to go before the Lord on your behalf. And uh, I'd also uh, invite you to come and check us out on Rumble. We have a, a Rumble page where you can watch our archives. We don't live stream there just yet, but you can go there. And we categorize all our questions as the top three questions per episode. So it's easy to navigate through there. If you don't want to go to Facebook or if you don't want to go to YouTube, you can go to Rumble and you can uh, find our episodes there and uh, search for questions that we've answered in the past if you don't want to engage live. Um, but also we have an app that I'd encourage you to check out. If you're part of our community, you can download our app at the either the uh, Apple or Google Play Store. And you can just do a search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Look for that little dove, download that, and you can not only engage with our community, keep up with current events, watch our live streams, our Wednesday evening oasis service where we're currently going through the book of Ezekiel or Sunday mornings we are going through the book of Acts you can follow along with that you can have a nifty little digital Bible where you can leave notes highlight text etc so I'd encourage you to download that if you have not yet and uh, we also live stream to all the Amazon fire products and Roku so if you have an Amazon fire device or a Roku device you can add us as a channel and watch our live streams. And lastly, if you want to leave a question uh, through the old-fashioned way, email, you can just email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope at gmail.com. 
and encourage you to follow our senior pastor on X, formerly Twitter, and you can do so at Scott R4H. That's Scott R4H. It's very um, informative and also at times entertaining. Um, Twitter feed. <laughs> At times. Well, sometimes now, you're serious. Not everyone's a winner. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> there are some catch and release ones. Yeah, I, 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 oh. <laughs> you know the first law of holes, right? Stop poking on them? No, no, when you, you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. Oh, yeah. So, there, 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 there. <laughs> a little bit of pastoral advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I need that okay. all the time. But uh, before we uh, take your questions and before we go through um, our sort of headline for the day, uh, we'll take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to be with us today. So, Sean, would you do the pleasure? It's an interesting event for me to be here. And thank you that we have the chance to be here. Oh, my Father and I with your spirit and enable us to share your word from the heart as well as from yours. Give the audience listening not only ears ready to hear your voice, but to appropriately receive and respond to what's shared here today. Give us questions that are not only from the heart, but that are relevant to their relationship with you, and allow us once again to be serving out of gratitude for all that you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Sean. Uh, Pastor Scott, do we have, um, I, I guess, some interesting news on the prophecy front? Well, or uh, current world affairs, maybe? Well, there is a, uh, a prophecy about Israel uh, in uh, Zechariah chapter 12, particularly Israel and Jerusalem in specific, uh, as uh, the, it's going to manifest itself in the last days. Uh, Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 1 says, The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall be in that day I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All would heave it away, will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. Well, a couple of really interesting things about that. Zechariah prophesied that in the aftermath of Israel uh, returning to their land after Babylon came in and basically leveled Jerusalem. Mm. Uh, what God is first of all saying is there's coming a day where that will never happen again. Secondly, we see in this prophecy that all nations of the world, in a sense, are going to be laying siege against Jerusalem. In other words, the one thing they can all agree on is that Jerusalem, as controlled by the Israelis, is the problem and it's got to go, or at least it's got to be put under new management. The interesting thing as well about this prophecy is that this policy of trying to straighten out, if you will, uh, Israel, and specifically Jerusalem, is going to make Jerusalem, how interesting, a cup of reeling. Uh, in the original language, it carries the idea of someone thrown back tequila until they can't think straight. Hmm. Uh, in other words, it's going to you know, promote uh, inebriated thinking among those who are coming against it. Uh, and uh, again, uh, all nations of the world are going to be involved with all this. Well, you know, we see pieces of this puzzle coming together in some pretty unique ways. And uh, uh, in the uh, Jerusalem Post and uh, Joel Rosenberg's great uh, All Israel News uh, website today, uh, some really fascinating stuff. Uh, first of all, uh, there's a huge diplomatic uh, firestorm uh, that is uh, igniting across the Arab world right now. You don't really hear very much about it on our news, but it's a big time thing out there. 
Israel's foreign minister was in Turkey to meet with the Turkish government. Well, the uh, uh, counterpart of Israel from Libya was also in the country at that time. The foreign minister of Libya, the foreign minister of Israel, sat down and actually had a conversation together, and the word leaked out. Uh, Libya immediately recalled its minister, uh, immediately began uh, uh, cursing a blue streak about uh, how we hate uh, those Jews and we're going to exterminate them and our policy hasn't changed a single bit. Well, you understand a little bit about recent history in Libya and what happened to Muammar Gaddafi and how uh, the mob can quickly change on you. You can probably understand why their government is probably throwing out their Muslim bona fides at that point. But uh, that's a huge dust-up. Uh, it's you know, created controversy. Now Turkey is saying, well, maybe we need to reevaluate our relationship with Israel. Doubt if they will, because Israel is too useful to Turkey on a number of different levels. Turkey doesn't want to be on the outside in, particularly when Israel's natural gas uh, largesse starts to flow. So uh, they're going to probably you know, do the usual ranting and raving and, and so on, wait for things to cool down. Then it's going to be probably business as usual. But this is a huge issue across the Arab world uh, right now. Uh, and uh, it's not just the Arab world that seems to have gotten uh, crossways uh, with Israel. Fascinating article on uh, Joel Rosenberg's allisraelnews.com. You don't follow allisraelnews.com. Can I uh, encourage you? Uh, to uh, to check it out. I think you're going to find it fascinating. Uh, there was a big dust-up uh, last week when uh, National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Giver, we've talked uh, quite a bit about him. Uh, you know, Itamar Ben-Giver is the kind of guy you would look at and say, you know, you really shouldn't hold back what you really think. It's not good for you. You know, it'll probably be easier on your stomach if you just said what you meant. Well, Itamar Ben-Giver there, there's the old joke about there's two kinds of people in the world, those who get ulcers and those who give them. Well, Itamar Ben-Giver is probably more on the give ulcer side of things because he will just tell it to you straight, and he really doesn't care uh, what, uh, what people think about this. Itamar Ben-Giver got into a, a major controversy uh, when he spoke on a TV panel discussion uh, that uh, the right of life for Jews takes precedent over freedom of movement for Arabs. Now, at first blush, we might say, well, that sounds fairly commonsensical, but remember, we're talking about the cup of reeling here. We're talking about the tequila and everything else like this. Uh, he said this, this was his quote, my right and my wife's and my children's right to get around on the roads in Judea and Samaria is more important than the right to movement for Arabs. That's the reality, that's the truth. My right to life comes before their right to movement. Well, following Ben Giver's remarks, our State Department decided to get involved, and uh, essentially the spokesman said, we condemn all racist rhetoric. In other words, Ben Giver saying that uh, the security and the right to life of his children takes precedence over, say, uh, ease of travel uh, for Arabs in the West Bank is a racist uh, statement. Uh, such messages are particularly damaging when amplified by those in leadership position and incongruent with advancing respect for human rights for all. Well, <laughs> uh, when the Americans got involved, another member of Benjamin Netanyahu's cabinet, very influential guy, 
uh, by the name of Bezalel Smotrich. We've talked a little bit about him as well. He's the Israeli finance minister. And, you know, let's face it, uh, whoever, uh, you know, uh, the golden rule, you know, he has the gold rules. He controls the finance. Pretty important guy. Uh, took on the United States, lambasting us. Uh, this is the quote from All Israel News. Uh, for displaying a double standard in its criticism of Israel's action in the West Bank. Smotrich claimed in an interview to the country's army radio that the Biden administration should not be preaching to Israel about morality and human rights. He said this, quote, There is no nation that has been fighting for its survival in the face of murderous terrorism for decades in a cleaner and more careful way than the Jewish people. Everyone who attacks us in the world is a hypocrite. I'm not talking about the Americans and how they acted in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, They shouldn't preach to us about human rights, neither to the IDF nor to us on a political level. This is unmitigated hypocrisy. I'm not ready to accept that once in a while people being murdered here uh, is okay because that's the price of Zionism. It is clear that we all want the best for the state. We do not accept Matter of fact, we do accept matter of fact discourse and criticism. We need to deal with how we manage security in the state of Israel. The reality is there is an ongoing wave of terrible terror against us. We are in a very serious wave of murders. Hmm. So, you know, again, the uh, ball was served over the net back at the United States, essentially saying, well, we really want to talk about uh, human rights abuses and uh, treating the locals uh, well, less than kindly. Let's talk about Afghanistan. Let's talk about Iraq. Let's talk about the planes taking off and the people falling off them. And so he said, I'm not going there. (laughs) He went there by saying, I'm not going there. So here you've got Itamar Ben-Giver stirring the pot, pouring coke on a red anthill. Then uh, you've got Smotrich coming in and essentially saying, what's the big deal and why should the United States of all countries uh, be in the business of uh, criticizing us? Well, uh, the cooler head that had to prevail was, you know, kind of reminds me of like uh, the teacher coming out to recess and separating the kids that get into a a dust up. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu got in and tried to mitigate the international backlash by making this statement in English claiming, quote, Israel allows maximum freedom of movement in Judea and Samaria for both Israelis and Palestinians. Unfortunately, Palestinian terrorists take advantage of this freedom of movement to murder Israeli women, children, and families by ambushing them at certain points on different routes. He noted that 34 Israeli citizens have been murdered by Palestinian terrorists in 2023, many of them for doing nothing worse than driving home. Uh, He uh, clarified, in order to prevent these heinous murders, Israel's security forces have implemented special security measures in these areas. This is what Minister Ben Giver meant when he said the right to life precedes freedom of movement. Hmm. So um, he's trying to get everybody to calm down and and play nice here. But what we've got is we've got uh, Libya getting caught making overtures to Israel, probably because uh, in the musical chairs of the Middle East, Libya doesn't want to be left out when the music stops and, say, Saudi Arabia jumps in and joins in the, uh, the Abraham Accords. Uh, then you've got this clandestine meeting that wasn't so clandestine. Uh, the, the word got out and uh, all of the 
you know, normal gestures and, you know, tearing of robes and throwing dust in the air uh, has to happen in the Arab world in order for these people running these Arab countries uh, to stay in power. A great example of this is uh, the fact that Jordan, uh, although having a peace treaty with Israel, whenever anything happens on the Temple Mount, right, it's the Jordanians that come in and they decry uh, the horrible human rights abuses of the Israelis and they quiet down. Well, why? Well, because Jordan is run by a minority ethnic group called the Hashemites. Uh, you know, that's who the king of Jordan comes from. Uh, his roots are from the Hashemites. The vast majority of people that live in Jordan are Palestinians. The Hashemites control government, they control the military, they control the finances, and they like it just the way it is. And uh, if the Palestinians get too stirred up, uh, you know, as we saw in the quote-unquote Arab Spring, uh, the Hashemites don't want to be shown the door. So it's in Israel's interest to keep the Hashemites in power uh, because they are, uh, Jordan is a land buffer between Israel and Iran. Mm -hmm. I mean, if there was a friendly country uh, towards Iran running the show in Jordan, uh, the Iranians would be on Israel's doorstep right across the Sea of Galilee. So, uh, you know, the, you, you have to keep all of these, these different you know, plates spinning. I don't remember the old variety shows where you'd have the jugglers yeah. try to keep the plates spinning and one yeah. would be falling down. You have to, Are that, the Hashemites that, more friendly towards Israel? Than, yes. Okay. So yeah. it's just. Uh, well, not officially, mm. but <laughs> they, they, they also know. How did I get into On a scale meeting? from, <laughs> I just met you, I want to murder you, to anything's better than that. Well, essentially, they're point of view is uh, we need to stay in power. The Israelis support the Hashemites uh, economically and uh, militarily. Uh, don't think they could keep their power without Israel being friendly to them at mm. this particular point. And so, you know, along with Egypt, Jordan has an official peace treaty with Israel. Now, all of this goes down, right? And uh, the, one of the uh, big pushes in our country uh, as far as having a foreign policy win going into elections and warming up for that, has been the Biden administration prodding Saudi Arabia to finally officially join the Abraham Accords. They can take credit for that sort of thing. Well, fascinatingly, uh, when, <laughs> when uh, all of this uh, went down, well, uh, again, uh, we're, we're told that uh, the finance minister that we mentioned earlier, Bezalel Smotrich, who lambasted the United States, also came out with a statement saying, uh, by the way, uh, all the talk from the U.S. State Department about uh, us giving up uh, land of the Palestinians uh, or accepting a two-state solution in exchange for uh, Saudi Arabia joining the Abraham Accords uh, not going to happen. Hmm. It's a non-starter. So, you know, the old land for peace thing, not, not really going to go down here. Now, whether Saudi Arabia joins the Abraham Accords or not, we really don't know. Uh, they signed a uh, military defense pact, uh, not just with China, but also with Iran. So, you know, they kind of looked at the United States, they kind of looked at the West, and they were like, uh, 
you know, they don't treat us very well. And they made a big deal about that journalist being murdered. And we don't like that. And they didn't like our live golf tour. And they said it was, you know, trying to uh, pave over our horrible human rights record with sports. So if you don't like us, well, we know somebody who writes checks who does like us. And uh, that would be China. And militarily, that would be Iran. Mm -hmm. So when you see someone like Smotrich saying, well, uh, you know, we're not going to give up land for peace for some paper agreement with the Saudis. I think he's just basically uh, did the handwriting on the wall and saw that this uh, whole thing is essentially not going to be worth the paper it's printed on. Mm. Now, prophetically, we know that's true. Uh, we do know that uh, Israel is going to be surrounded by all nations, as we saw in the book of Zechariah. We do know that there is going to be a last day's invasion of Israel led by Russia with Iran right at their side, a uh, number of Central uh, Asiatic uh, Muslim republics joining in with them. Turkey will be a part of it. Libya will be a part of it as well, interestingly enough, hmm. uh, mentioned specifically by name. Uh, so uh, when we see these things happen, we kind of know what the flow of all of this is. And I think if, um, you know, like I say, I'm no expert on international diplomacy, but uh, when you take a look at what's clearly happening and you take a look at it from that lens of Scripture that we know that sooner or later uh, Israel is going to be identified not only as a nation, as the great impediment to peace in the world, but Jerusalem itself and the control of Jerusalem has got to be uh, something that has to be uh, militarily seized from Israel. Uh, we realize that uh, although we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we certainly hope that cool heads prevail. We don't know mm -hmm. how close we are to these events. A lot of them are going to take place in the tribulation period. But we certainly see the stage being set. A, Israel's back in the land. That is a major prophetic fulfillment. You were talking about that last week, weren't mm -hmm. you? Yep, and they ain't going anywhere. Yeah, so, you know, when we see that, and, and in the uh, Odyssey files under, they ain't going anywhere. Another fascinating article uh, that was uh, that came up uh, in uh, the Jerusalem Post. Uh, the uh, the head of uh, military development, uh, the Raphael Advanced Defense Systems Chairman Yuval Steinitz, uh, told Israeli Army Radio yesterday, "Quote: One year from now, Israel will be the first country to have partial." laser protection mm. in two years there will be complete protection against missiles shells rockets or anything else this will protect us both in the south and in the north wow. now that's a fascinating statement to make especially in light of the fact that the ayatollah Khomeini uh also raised some eyebrows by saying we're going full bore on enriching our uranium we don't really care that joe biden gave us six billion dollars to uh uh, release some dual citizenship individuals who, by the way, aren't released. They're still under house arrest in a hotel mm -hmm. in Tehran. They're not in a horrible uh, place like the Evan prison or something like that. But uh, crazy stuff. Now, Israel is saying we're going to have this functional laser defense system in place. And uh, if you're Iran and you've put all of your eggs in the basket of developing ballistic missiles and nuclear technology to develop them, and Israel says, well, guess what? Within two years, you're not going to get anywhere near our borders. Uh, they're going to use lasers, mm. as we were joking <laughs> Laser about. Laser beams. Lasers, yeah. Now, if prophetically, 
the world, when it goes through all the judgments, you know, huge amounts of the Earth's population will perish. But Israel remains relatively uh, protected in a sense. At least until the second half of the tribulation. Mm. And we're also told in the book of Zechariah that two-thirds of Israel is going to be wiped out before the end of the tribulation period. One third will survive, be refined, go through the fire and enter in to the thousand year reign of Christ when he comes oh. back again. But two thirds are gonna be wiped out. So mm. uh, Israel doesn't get the uh, get out of jail free card. And uh, as if that wasn't enough, uh, earlier today there was a 7.1 on the Richter scale earthquake just off the coast of Bali in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. uh, no uh, reports about uh, injuries or damage yet uh, or any kind of a tsunami coming out of something like this, but we'll keep you posted. Uh, <laughs> my trip to California last week uh, was uh, on and off and on again because of uh, Hurricane Hillary mm -hmm. uh, coming through Palm Springs, believe it or not, wow. and uh, creating a river of mud that uh, completely closed down I-10. So mm. uh, that was uh, uh, our little thing. And then the, the funny thing was, after this, right in the middle of uh, Hurricane Hillary, and, you know, again, my folks who live 50 miles north of L.A. said, ah, it was light showers. Didn't really, wasn't, <laughs> wasn't really the, the, the amazing wow that people were uh, portraying it to be. Uh, and so they were watching light showers and go, well, I guess we got out of that. Uh, about uh, 15 miles away from my parents' house, there's a 5.1 uh, on the Richter scale earthquake wow. that uh, really rattled everybody's cages. So. There you go. For those who may not have a, a background, what are the Abraham Accords, and is it something that we are glad about? Well, in a sense, I guess we are. Can you give us a summary of that? Yeah, it's in a nutshell, and a lot of attention's been given to this because any mention of peace in the Middle East is going to draw attention. We know that the Antichrist, capital A Antichrist, by the way, not just someone who presents themselves as an alternative to Christ, is going to put together a, or rather confirm, rather, an accord with many, in particular the people of God. The Abraham Accords draw people's attention because it not only involves the people of Israel, but several Sunni Muslim nations that are willing to cooperate in an ease of travel, essentially not even as far as an alliance financially, but a non-aggression agreement in that they'll have ease of travel over Saudi Arabian territories and others in order to get to areas of high commercial trade value like the UAE specifically. So this peace treaty allowing the Hebrew nation of Israel and the Arabs therein to travel freely to and from and across from formerly hostile land in the Middle East is curious, but it doesn't go much farther than that. What's nice about it is that along with Turkish airspace, for instance, it does give Israel more access to areas like Europe without having to go over the Mediterranean and then turn. We know that uh, a shorter flight to and from Israel from the United States would be nice, but it's not necessarily <laughs> world changing. Yeah. That's mm. the idea, is this uh, accord involves peace in the Middle East. It includes Israel mm. and it's with a lot of different nations that normally don't play nice together on principle. Now, does this mean that this is the Antichrist's treaty? No, not necessarily. Uh, could it be? Absolutely. Treaties can be formed, expanded, and noting the specific language of Daniel 9 notes, he doesn't write the treaty, he confirms it, he solidifies or strengthens mm. it. So more so information. It could be the underpinnings of what the future could bring as that treaty. Yeah, and we've, with many. 
and it's been suggested with plenty of other treaties involving Israel in the past, yeah. we need more information. That's why we aren't jumping up and down going, mm-hmm. I've seen the FEMA camps. I'm you know, <laughs> doing the Alex <laughs> well, this Jones This is the one thing, that right? was spearheaded That's by the... That's a good Alex Jones, by the way. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very good. I was doing Sean Connery last yes. week. But now you've got Alex... We've got Sean Connery we and got Alex the Jones. whole gang here. Yeah. I, have, I don't have anything I can come up with at the moment. You got nothing? Not today. You have to work on it. <laughs> I'll yeah. think of it. But uh, didn't the previous administration spearhead the Abraham Accords? They were a part of it. They were part of it. Yeah, uh, well, a huge part of it. Um, again, Donald Trump's uh, son-in-law, Jared Kushner, mm. was pretty much the uh, one who got them all together and yep. signed on the line. So and we dealt with questions about whether or not he was the Antichrist, and as you can see, no. But yeah. yeah. By the way, uh, there was a question that was posed on Twitter. I'm back on Twitter after being away from it for a week. Funny how my mind kind of cleared up after all of that. But uh, uh, the, the question was, why are so many people looking for the Antichrist instead of Jesus Christ? And the easy answer is, when you look for the Antichrist, you get more clicks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's more, uh, yeah, it's more clickbaity. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Uh, big time true. clickbaity. And you get the added extra bonus of identifying someone that you don't like politically and accusing them of being like uh, the next best thing to Satan himself. Yeah. I remember seeing all the... Prince Charles is the Antichrist. Obama's the Antichrist. Yeah. <laughs> Kushner's yeah. the Antichrist. Hillary's the Antichrist. You name it. Yeah. 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 Well, Ronnie wants to know what exactly will the punishments in the lake of fire and rewards in, new, in the new heaven and earth be like? Well, when it comes to what we're told about hell, the consistent picture is it's a place you don't want to go. If you're expecting like a um, Aztec description like Saibalba, for instance, their lurid descriptions of uh, torture and excruciating pain. Yeah, the pain Mayans. That, yeah, Boy, they, the, they went to town on that. Yeah, yeah. And, and then compare it, say, for instance, to the details given in the Quran about hell and so forth. The Bible doesn't give that. Uh, when it comes to there being differences or distinctions of punishment, there are passages that suggest that, but not dogmatically. Uh, for instance, in Jesus' description on this very topic of where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched, uh, he goes on in follow-ups to this in the context of parables, by the way, which is also worth noting, but says that those who were worthy of many stripes will be beaten with few, those who are worthy of few stripes will be beaten with many, on the basis of what? The context of the parable was they knew better. Right. So a, a degree of responsibility. It's not like the person who, you know, just trolled people on the internet is going to experience the same degree of separation from God that Satan will, but it certainly is noted that that conscious state of separation from God in the sense of blessed fellowship with him is what hell is in a nutshell. It's if heaven is with Jesus, then hell is without Jesus. Now, we are told of various, um, and I have the term crown in mind, and the comparison is intentionally used for the uh, di- um, what diadems? Yes. The uh, crown well, that was well, given to Olympians. No, the diadem was the crown that was given to royalty. The Stephanos, Stephanos that was one. the crown, the laurel wreath, if you will, that was given to the winner of the Olympic Games. And those specifically are mentioned in Scripture that there are rewards given for specific forms of service. Now, to say the inverse in hell, we aren't told. All we know is if you know better, you're going to be held accountable to more. But what does the Bible say about those who w- could, you know, 
put up their treasure in heaven, what are some of the things we're told that we'll have the chance to cast before Jesus' feet anyway, a la Revelation 4? Well, there's a number of crowns that are mentioned in the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul definitely spoke of them as something that he anticipated uh, receiving. Uh, maybe uh, the, uh, and I would just encourage those of you in the audience, you really want an encouraging study, uh, you know, just look up on, uh, you know, a program like Blue Letter Bible or Bible Hub, look up crowns and, uh, or crown in the New Testament. And boy, just an amazing uh, study that you can get into that describes how we can live our lives in such a way that we're going to, in a sense, be rewarded for it in the, the hereafter. Uh, two key passages, I think, about crowns uh, that, uh, and, and the rewards of the Christian life that we really need to understand. I remember uh, uh, getting the opportunity to sit in a chapel when I was at Talbot. Uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Howard Hendricks from uh, Dallas Theological Seminary came and spoke to us. And the, the subject of his talk was really fascinating. He said that one of the most poorly understood and poorly taught doctrines of Christianity is also one of the most motivating, and that is eternal rewards or the mm -hmm. crowns uh, that we're going to receive. You know, the Apostle Paul got the ball spinning on all of this when he used this very same analogy uh, about what motivated him to go to the lengths that he went to to get the gospel into the hands of other people. We're going through the book of Acts right now, and spoiler alert, when we get into Acts chapter 14, we're going to see the Apostle Paul uh, sharing the gospel. First it's received, then it's rejected. Uh, literally run out of uh, one city on a rail, goes to the next one, uh, and uh, basically ends up getting stoned to death. They dragged him out of the city and left him for dead. Uh, some people believe that's when he saw the third heaven of 2 Corinthians 12. If you want to ask about that, we can talk about it. Mm. But, uh, but, you know, what kept him motivated? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24 says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Well, the perishable crown was well understood by the people Paul was talking to. Uh, it referred to the laurel wreath that would be put on the head of an individual who won an event at the ancient Olympics or Isthmian Games or even the local games there. Stephanos. Yeah, the, uh, the, the, the wonderful thing uh, about that is uh, you would be put on a uh, monthly salary for the rest of your life and you'd never have to pay taxes. Oh, wow. So it was big. So it's more than a reef. Yeah, it, it was. It, it's what it really <laughs> represented. And, and he said, they do it for an imperishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. In other words, what Paul is saying is, we're running a race. We're competing an event. We need to have the same focus that an athlete does and the same understanding mm. of what the blessings and benefits of running the race well, running mm. to win, if you will, are all about. Did Paul take this seriously? Well, I love... Uh, his uh, kind of parting words, if you uh, take them this way, the book of Second Timothy, last words he, uh, last book he wrote hmm. before he was decapitated uh, on uh, the Ostian Way outside of Rome. Uh, he said this about his life in verse eight. Uh, well, we could start verse six, I guess, of Second uh, Timothy chapter four. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Wow. Now, uh, this crown of righteousness, uh, this crown that highlights the right relationship we have with God by grace through faith, was something that Paul eagerly anticipated receiving. And that's what mm. kept him focused, even in these incredibly dire circumstances. Sometimes I think we kick around the idea of, you know, if things really, you know, keep circling the drain and being a Christian's a crime and, you know, it's, uh, you know, uh, renounce your faith or, you know, uh, dire consequences. How would we hold up under that? You know, sometimes we don't hold up real well when someone says, you know, well, I, th I think you're a dummy for being a Christian. Oh, mm. I'm persecuted. Oh, terrible. But, but what, you know, what kept him focused? It was that idea of a sure and certain reward he was going to receive. Mm. Now, some people say, well, you know, just getting to heaven, just being with Jesus, that's reward enough. And I would agree. Well, is that but, but you know what? Here's the deal. And this is what Howard Hendricks emphasized. That's not the way God looks at it. God is so gracious, over-the-top gracious, right? Anything good or lasting that we do in our lives, he's done in and through us, mm. right? But mm. because he used us, for some strange reason, we stand before the Lord someday, we're going to receive a reward along that line. And in you know, past like 1 Corinthians 3, it, it talks about uh, how you, know, you don't want to lose that reward. There's going to be some people that are going to be saved yet as through the flames. In other words, they're going to be there, but they're not going to have anything to show for this life. And, and Paul sure. talks about that as suffering loss. In some way, that is a loss to us. Now, that doesn't mean somebody's going to be in heaven and go, oh, bummer, you know, really drag me in here in heaven. I didn't have as many <laughs> rewards. No, you know, everlasting joy is going to be on your head. Mm -hmm. But we're going to receive these crowns. And I mean, there's interesting uh, ideas about what these crowns represent, especially when you see them uh, portrayed in action in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, where the 24 elders cast their crowns before the Lord. Did you have that passage? Or? I, I mentioned it briefly yeah. when I was handing the ball off. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when they cast their crowns before the Lord, they worship him. And there are those who believe that when we receive a reward for a race well run, a fight well fought, uh, you know, being faithful uh, with what God's called us to do, hmm. it is going to, in a sense, impact our ability to be able to give glory to God. Not to get something, if you will, but to give, hmm. you know, and just to say, man, Lord, you did it all. Uh, yeah, and if your pockets are empty in heaven and you have nothing to give, it's going to be kind of like a bummer. <laughs> yeah, well, you'll be watching the other people that did have something to give. I always thought that that crown of righteousness was just a symbol for the righteousness that's imputed on all believers for just having believed. No, because there's a, a qualification there. Uh, it is a crown that, it, that Paul said, there is laid up for me uh, that crown that is there. And he said, not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So love is appearing is more than just believing in Christ and being saved. As opposed to the First Corinthians 3, saved as though through flames. You can be wow. in the presence of God, but not uh, necessarily well, that idea have been rejoicing. That idea just chills up my spine. That's yeah. just so, profound. So the bottom line is, if you live like Jesus could come at any time, you'll get the crown of righteousness. Mm. And, you know, Titus chapter 2, 
uh, says, you know, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaches that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious mm. appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless work and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Hmm. You know, zealous means to burn. It, it means to be hot about something. It means just, to, oh, this is my passion. Well, when we realize what's on the table, you know, uh, that, that there is this amazing reward. And if, you know, again, someone said, well, isn't it just symbolic and, and so on? But there's, you know, again, the crown of righteousness. There's the, the, uh, the uh, victors. There's the uh, soul winner's crown. Uh, you know, Paul even looked at the uh, Thessalonians as his joy and his crown of rejoicing, hmm. if you will. Uh, so, you know, some people say, well, you know, couldn't that just be symbolic? Okay, maybe we'll find out when we get there, but I'd hate to, uh, cool my jets a bit because it's like, well, you know, all believers are going to get that, you know? No, it just seems like, uh, that's, that's a incredible motivating thing. And, you know, when Howard Hendricks shared about all of that, I never really even considered that. Mm. You know, I was kind of in that, well, we'll all be there and everlasting joy on our heads. And, you know, nothing, nothing we do in this life is purposeless. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, to uh, quote uh, uh, Maximus from Gladiator, mm. what we do in this life echoes yeah. in eternity. Mm. And, and from Paul, you know, and and everything, everything matters. Everything is significant. Mm. There's no such thing as just going through the motions as a Christian. And I think one of the reasons uh, that, especially in the Western church, uh, there's like such an epidemic of pew sitting, mm -hmm. you know, just, oh, I go to church. Yeah, I kind of believe the party line. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and a lack of passion about these things mm -hmm. is that we fail to understand how significant our lives are going to be when we see the Lord face to face. And, and you know, again, I'll grant you, just for sake of argument, that Okay, uh, maybe they aren't literal crowns. You know, maybe it's just you know the approval that we have in our relationship with God. But we do know that Jesus is going to say specifically to people that ran their race well and fought their their mm -hmm. fight to the end and and so on. Well done, good and faithful servant. Notice he doesn't say well said, good and faithful servant, or well thought, good and faithful servant, but well done. Mm. You know, we're not saved by good works but we are saved for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them well the parable of the sower and the parable of the talent seem to indicate a hierarchy in heaven and like you said in first corinthians chapter three the idea that some of us will have a greater reward than others based on what we invest in uh, i just assume that that particular crown the one of righteousness was for all believers but that's really fascinating yeah uh, you know there's a there's a really interesting video uh, that the Not the Bee website put mm. up today about a guy who uh, was once involved with selling drugs and human trafficking, uh, who now makes his living uh, picking up bottles and trash in New York for recycling. And no shortage there. And, and you've never seen a more joyful guy in your life. And they said, well, you know, you're doing this job, you know, and it's like, you know, and, and I mean, you just see this light. He goes, well, in 1993, you know, I lost my wife, I lost my kids, I went to jail. Someone ratted us out. We were on a uh, run from the Bahamas into uh, Miami, bringing in some uh, weed and some, uh, some smuggling some people. 
and uh, I, I lost everything. But then he said these uh, two little old ladies came in and spoke to him where he was at, I think he was at Rikers Island, which is a really rough prison. Mm. But they came in and they, they shared the gospel and he just said, man, it's just like God spoke to me. He said, I wanted that. And he said, that, knowing Jesus changed my life. Mm. And he says, I'm out here doing this bottle thing here. He goes, but I see miracles out here. I get to talk to people and encourage people and pray for people. And he goes, I could go on and on uh, about it all. But he said, God prepared this before the foundation of the world, that I'd be doing this work uh, with, with just collecting junk and bottles and doing recycling. Mm. So, you know, I, he goes, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the, the, the luckiest guy on earth. He goes, and it's just, I would really recommend that you, you watch it because he just has this, this spark of love for Jesus and serving him in his eyes. And again, that's mm -hmm. on the Not The Bee website today. We also posted it on our uh, Twitter feed at uh, scottr4h at twitter.com if you want to check it out. What would you say to, like in the book of Revelation, the letters to the churches, some of them had seemed to have started out really well and maybe lost some of that zeal. How would you encourage believers who feel a little zeal less or zeal lacking? How would you encourage them to, to think more with an eternal perspective like that? How Jesus said, go back to your first love. If mm. it started with me, it'll continue with me. Paul mm. said in Galatians that if you who having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect through the flesh? It was meant to be sarcastic, of course not. What started you is mm. gonna help you finish. But if we're losing that connection, just go back to what connected you. You don't find a second port. You go back to where you know power is. Mm. Yeah, and, and you know what, what, what really boggled my mind, I'll speak personally, but I'm sure you guys will bear witness, is when you really authentically receive Jesus as your Savior and you have the first experience of God's Holy Spirit changing you, and changing the way you respond to people and changing the way you think about things and changing the way you look at the Bible and changing the way you look at Christians and changing the way you look at the world. Uh, and, and it is so mind-blowing, like the first divine appointment you have, you know, where you just happen to be somewhere and someone's looking around and they're like, oh man, I'm so depressed. If only someone could tell me how to know God. Like, wow, man, you know. I, I remember one of the, the mind-blowing things to me uh, uh, that, that happened right after I first got saved was it was like suddenly everything mattered in my life. Mm. It was like my life was like a movie. I couldn't wait to see how every day was gonna turn out because I could see God working in my life. And you know, when you talk about, Sean, going back to your first love uh, and, and that first love experience with God, what was it that made the first love experience so profound? It was that simple dependency upon the Lord through his spirit to live his life out through us before we become all theological and before we become all bogged down with committees and, and you know, our good works and, you know, uh, you know, listen to sermons and go, yeah, I heard that. Yeah, I heard this guy teach that or something. You know, when it was all fresh and was all new, what was it? It was a work of the Spirit. Hmm. And, and if we just come back to that simple dependency upon God's Holy Spirit, starting the day saying, Lord, please, hmm. may the coming upon power of your Spirit rest upon me. Open my eyes to be able to see the way you see. You know, give me love for people, especially unlovely people. Help me to bring your hope into this hopeless world. Live your life out through me. Mm. That's, that's, I think, going back to your first love. And the, the, the good works naturally flow out of them because God mm. prepares them. Yeah, and just to be brief so that we have time for the other 11 questions that are waiting, when we're talking about but who's the, counting? <laughs> the other, um, I guess, people 
coming to an expectation of saying, I've lost my first love. I have no passion for Jesus anymore. I know I'll just start thinking about Jesus and boom, all those emotions are going to come back. No, our emotional perception of Jesus and our passion and zeal for him are two different things. And also noting as well, the work of the Spirit's described not as electricity, it's described as a fruit. It's not something where you flip the switch and suddenly Mm. it's on. It's something that naturally progresses and grows over time if it's kept in a safe and healthy environment. Mm. So don't expect immediate results, just stick Mm. at it, as Jesus said. So it is possible for an aged believer to humble themselves and kind of protect the fruit, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, like Paul said in Galatians, you know, or, you know, you know, you started with the spirit. You're now made perfect by the, f- the flesh. I'll tell you, this, the shortest distance between two points to become an old fuddy-duddy for Jesus is relying upon yourself and not the power of God's Holy Spirit. Mm. Consciously. Mm. Jesus said, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit yeah. coming upon power, mm. not the indwelling, the indwelling we, already, we always have, but the coming upon power of the Spirit to those who ask. Sometimes yeah. we have not because we ask not. Mm. So I like how Paul puts it. He's he said, I die daily. Yeah. It's a daily, daily thing. Yeah. All right. Back uh, to the question. Yeah. Uh, Before I get Cruz wants to know, what is the manna we will receive in Revelation? Um, Revelation 2, Jesus said to the church of Pergamos, uh, he who overcomes shall be given some of the hidden manna to eat. Now, we look back at Exodus 16 and think, so Jesus is going to give us healthy donuts from the sky that look like coriander seeds at first? No. What he's talking about is like, like everything else <laughs> in Revelation, it's a reference to the first 65 books. Uh, John, the apostle, for those of you who don't know, wrote the book of Revelation. The first verse specifies that. But if you want to know a good place to start as far as any references to what Jesus was talking about, the Gospel of John is usually a good first stop, only to be rivaled by Daniel, then to Zechariah, then to Ezekiel, and so forth. But in the Gospel of John chapter 6, there was another use that Jesus made a reference to that's appropriately applied to what he's encouraging Pergamos and all the other six churches to do, and that was to receive of me again. And in the Gospel of John chapter 6, he made this first point. To answer your question in one word, the hidden manna is Jesus. To answer it in 18 words, it was what Jesus was referring to as himself in John 6 as the true bread from heaven. This is verse 32. Jesus said to the most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, if you finish the chapter, you'd note that he's not saying physically eat of me, but something's been sent. That's the theme going all the way back to the most direct description of salvation in the Bible, even better than John 3.16 and verse 29 of John 6. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Right. Notice that theme repeated over and over again. So when Jesus repeats that again to the church of Pergamos, they had gotten into accepting false teachers, someone even directly referenced to another unsavory individual from the Old Testament. Notice the theme here as well. Lots of Old Testament references. But this one, you don't even have to go to Exodus. Jesus explains, I'm the true manna from heaven. Mm. And if you want a little trivia course, manna just means what is it? Because they didn't know either. (laughs) (laughs) What is it? Yeah, Yeah. that's what the word means. (laughs) And it always cracks me up because inevitably around uh, uh, Easter time, Passover time, uh, one of the secular news outlets will say, well, let's look at the new look at the the Exodus. Remember, I read this story where it said, well, you know, uh, the Exodus couldn't have happened. Uh, how could 
two and a half to five million people survived for 40 years in the wilderness. It would take a miracle. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Moving on. <laughs> but uh, what is it? That's yeah. funny. I yeah. think that's the look that my boys gave me when I homemade all their baby food. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> Uh, another question here. Uh, well, actually, actually, it's a series of questions. On a previous A Reason for Hope live stream, we had a, an, a someone who described themselves as an atheist, uh, Martin. Thank you, Martin, for listening to the show. We hope that your questions are sincere, and we hope that uh, we can you know, deal with them in a, in a way that's satisfying to your intellect. But um, several series of questions, and I don't think we'll get to all of them today, but they're all surrounding... Uh, some of the Gospels and Jesus' early life, but um, one of them was, does the census of Luke 2 have any historical data to back it up? Yeah, the controversy around the days in which Quirinius was governor of Syria, they say because there's no record of that having taken place around the time that Jesus would have been born, it would have been, of course, when Herod the Great was still alive. He died around 4 BC, so if you think, you know, 0 AD is when Jesus was born, sorry, it's not the case. But around that time period, at least, assuming Herod died that year. Um, they did spend some time in Egypt, so we have wiggle room for maybe two to three years. But four to six BC, we don't have a lot of information about records that were taking place specifically in Judea. Now, normally historians are objective, and I mean that with every bit of sarcasm it sounds like, and they would say that, oh, well, you know, if we don't have information, then we'll just wait for more. But atheists aren't content with that. They'll say, because we have no information, this is evidence that there is no information, it's a false event, Luke was mistaken. Well, first of all, you don't come to information what you don't have, you come to conclusions based on what you do. Was Quirinius an actual historical figure? Not just mentioned in the Bible, but also in the records of the Roman annals and the annals of Flavius Josephus. He was a Jewish historian. We do know that he had not one, but two terms as governor of the region we know today as Syria and right. others in the Roman government when he was not only uh, around 6 AD, if we're going to be generous, but also had another reign that was around 10 years before that, and the term limits are malleable. We can look at the Greek language and note that it was not just as it's translated into English in the days, but around or even before. Yeah. Some have suggested if you go off of the language. Yeah, the language says when uh, Quirinius was first governor, uh, that could uh, essentially mean uh, the word protos can be translated before. In other words, he was saying this was before Quirinius was governor. But even yeah. if you dismiss that, the plain language is plain. We're dealing with an actual historical figure. He gets the office that he had, right? The only thing that we're missing is an actual note of the census taking place in the time period that we would expect. And here's where it ultimately comes together. If you can make a case that this is possible, then you have more reason to give it the benefit of the doubt with information we don't have than to assume the worst that this is an entire fabrication, despite using real historical figures, real historical locations, and also, by the way, cross-referencing it with another historical figure that most atheists wouldn't deny the existence of, Caesar Augustus. Right. So note that point. But Luke's peppering this account with as much historical data as we can, and we can note three or four of them. So what about the fifth? Well, we can use information to note that there were a lot of censuses during the time of the Roman Empire. Why? It was an empire. They would gather taxes even when they didn't need them. And we also have a written record, right. believe it or not, of a very nearby region known as Egypt, <laughs> where they would have cyclical 
tax seasons. And these, of course, would happen fairly annually. And if we note that Egypt is all but next door to the region we know as Judea, we can assume that Quirinius was following pretty much the same financial pattern that we see exercised there. Now note that those on the anti-theist end of this argument are going to say that's no evidence at all just because you name historical figures doesn't mean it's historical evidence or historical fact unless you can show me with 100 percent absolute certainty that this is a historical event despite me deciding in advance that it's already false then i'm going to say that it's false that's not objective if you're on the more agnostic side and say well there's still missing information here you're going off of neighboring countries or regions in the empire not the actual region we don't know if this was how they worked things next door. You only have the basis and evidence for how they work things in Egypt. We don't know if this is when Quirinius was reigning. We don't know, we don't know, we don't know. Great, but if you don't know something, that doesn't mean you know something, i.e. that this is false. It means you don't know. Thus, it sets you out of the conversation. We also don't want to be unobjective as Christians and say, we are 100% absolutely certain the extra-biblical evidence is beyond any reasonable doubt. No, there's good reason to believe that Luke got his historical notes right, and other historians like uh, Sir, Sir William, William Ramsey. Ramsey. Yeah. Sir William Ramsey. No. I was thinking of Anderson. Anyway, he said that Luke was a historian of the first rank. So given the information he had access to as a first century source is fair enough to come to conclusions to. If that's not sufficient for you, then I challenge you to be more consistent with history and pretend you don't know anything, including what you had for breakfast this morning. That's a good point. <laughs> well, thanks for listening in. And uh, Martin, we'll try to get to the rest of your questions that you left in that comment uh, in future programs. So tune in. Thank you so much. And we'll see you same place, same time tomorrow. God bless you. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.